Our passage today is from Luke chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. And Luke says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The word of the Lord. So a few months ago, I uh, did a kind of a experiment project with a group of seventh graders where I asked them to explain the gospel in 10 words or less. So they had to try to put the gospel in 10 words or less. And uh, most of you probably know that gospel just means good news. Uh, So they had to tell me what the good news was, 10 words or less. They did a pretty good job. Uh, They were missing something, though. Um, And then when I gave them what I thought was a good explanation of the gospel in 10 words or less, I was missing something. And I would guess that if I asked you to do the same thing, if I asked you to write it out, that you would probably be missing something, too. You might say something along the lines of Jesus saved sinners uh, by dying on the cross. That would be true. You might say something like, people can be saved by believing in Jesus. That would be true. But it's missing something. In our passage here, Jesus has gone around healing people. It's the very beginning of his ministry. He's gone to Nazareth and basically tells them that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah, of these passages, and they kick him out and then uh, try to kill him. And then he goes to Capernaum and Galilee, and he goes around healing the sick, making the blind see, healing the crippled. And he goes to this one town, and the people will not let him leave. And he stays up all night healing their sick. And he's healing and healing and healing. And then the morning comes, and he tries to escape into a desolate place, and they won't let him leave. And so he has to stop them and be like, look, I didn't come just to heal people physically. The reason that I was sent was to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Is that weird to any of you that he says the gospel is the kingdom of God? Like I I would expect him to say something along the lines of the gospel of uh, salvation or the gospel of me coming to die for your sins or the gospel that you get to come to heaven. But instead he says the gospel The good news is the kingdom of God. And so that's the question that we're going to ask this morning. Why is the gospel, why is the good news the kingdom of God? So we're going to answer this in three ways. So the kingdom of God is good news and that the king is good news. The king of the kingdom is is good news. The work of the kingdom is good news. And the future of the kingdom is good news. So the king of the kingdom is good news. When Jesus comes on the scene and he starts his ministry, he starts in Israel. And so he's talking to to Jewish people when he comes in and says the kingdom of God is the gospel, is the good news. They would have had a category for this. Remember, Abraham was promised that a nation would come through him and that nation would be a blessing to all the other nations. I remember what the promised land was supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a place with flowing with milk and honey. It's supposed to be prosperous. They're supposed to be protected from their enemies. They're supposed to have the presence of God dwelling in them. It was a place where they were supposed to flourish. 
And in Genesis 49, there's a promise that this promised land will be run by a king. There will be a scepter from the tribe of Judah that will come and will be Israel's king. So we fast forward a little bit. The Israelites go into the promised land and they're ruled by these judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you realize that these judges failed Israel miserably. They tried to act like kings. Uh, they weren't supposed to. Um, they were immoral and they failed to keep enemy ultimately, I mean, keep Israel ultimately from their enemies. And so when the judges fail, Israel goes and they, they beg for a king. And it's King Saul. He's the next king. We know King Saul fails Israel. He kind of turns out to be this psychopathic murderer. He, he wants to kill David. Um, he tries to offer um, sacrifices that he's not allowed to offer. He goes to see this kind of sorcerer lady. Um, so Saul is not the promised king. Then we get David. David's the closest that we get in the Old Testament of this promised king. But his kingdom was one of war, not peace. A lot of people died in his kingdom. And he turned out to be an adulterer and a murderer. He let his people down. Then we get Solomon, who was wise, and the kingdom enjoyed peace for a while. Uh, but he had 700 wives. And he, he worshiped false gods and led Israel to do the same. He failed Israel. We could go on from there and talk about all the other kings of Israel, only a handful of whom were uh, good kings, but even those failed to perfectly protect Israel, perfectly provide for them, and perfectly prosper them. They all failed. And look, the result is that Israel for hundreds of years was subjected to wicked nations like Assyria, like Babylon, like the Persians, the Greeks. And now when Jesus shows up, the Israelites are under the rule of the Roman nation. So Jesus shows up and he says, hey, good news. The kingdom is here. The king that you've been told about for thousands of years, it's here. And I'm its king. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he's saying that all these other kings have failed to save their people from their enemies and he is the only one who's able to save Israel from sin and from death. All the other kings failed to provide for all their people. Jesus is the only one with a cattle on a thousand hills. All the other kings failed to make their people prosper. Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. So the best part about the kingdom is the king. A lot of times we kind of think that the gospel, the good news, is kind of like a ticket to a concert. So I really want to see, well, I'd like to see Willie Nelson uh, in concert before he passes away, um, which may not get the chance to, uh, getting old. But I would love to see Willie Nelson in concert. So if I'm going to go see Willie Nelson in concert, I'm going to go on to StubHub or some website, buy a ticket. They're going to email me an electronic copy of a ticket, right? That ticket is going to sit in my inbox for six months, a year, however long it's going to be until I go see Willie Nelson. When I show up to the concert, I'm going to get to the gate, I'm going to show the person my ticket, they're going to scan it, see that it's good, and let me in. A lot of times that's how we think about the gospel. We think the gospel is really just a ticket out of hell. That maybe when we're younger, we say a prayer, we say, Jesus, I, I trust you, I believe in you, and Jesus gives us a ticket says, all right, you get, you get a ticket into heaven. 
Stick that ticket in your pocket. You go on 40, 50 years of your life. You die. And you're standing at the gates of heaven and Jesus is there. And you say, oh, oh yeah, me. I got this ticket when I was you know, 15 years old. I prayed a prayer and I get into heaven now. And Jesus looks at it and says, yep, I see that. That checks out. Come on in. Y'all, that is not the gospel. The good news is not that you get a get out of hell free card. The good news is that you get a king. The good news is that you get Jesus. So let's think about this Jesus. Let's think about our king. He is exactly who you want to be in charge. So why is it good news that we get Jesus? Because he is the king of all kings and all presidents and all rulers. He cannot be voted out of office. Nothing can restrain him. Nothing can control him. Nothing can scare him. Nothing can surprise him. Nothing can intimidate him. Nobody can bribe him and nobody can stop him. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, always present everywhere, and he upholds the universe by the mere word of his power. There's no king like Jesus. He's available to the tempted and the weary. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He sympathizes with the broken. He heals the wounded and the sick. He's an advocate for his people. He prays for his people even now. He sacrificed his life for his people. What king does that? He forgives the sinner. He provides for the needy. He judges the wicked. He rewards the faithful. He includes the outcast. He communes with the lonely. He sees the sufferer. He gives strength to the weak. He gives hope to the hopeless. And he gives peace to the anxious. There's no king like King Jesus. How do you measure up to that? He makes the blind see. He makes the deaf hear. He makes the lame walk. <coughs> Excuse me. He gives freedom to the captive. So he gives freedom to the captive. He gives liberty to the oppressed. He brings vengeance to the oppressor. He proclaims good news to the poor. His word is true. His reign is eternal. His deeds are righteous. His love is selfless. His kindness is limitless. His courage is unmatched. Jesus set his face on Jerusalem and walked to the cross. His generosity is infinite. His patience is immeasurable. His anger is measured. His power is terrifying. His grace is bottomless. His justice is unwavering. There is no king like King Jesus. The world scoffs at him. The angels erupt in praise for him. The prophets longed for him. The earth groans for him. The children were drawn to him. The demons were scared of him. The creation obeys him. The enemy couldn't kill him, and the grave couldn't hold him. There is no king like King Jesus. Don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? Don't you want to know that king? Look, we could talk about the king, the role of Christ as king, the personhood, 
of Christ. We could talk about that all day. Here's just a quick point of application. When that king, when that king is on the throne, it means that we can have peace. We can have peace instead of anxiety. When tragedy strikes and you don't know why, Christ is on his throne and he is for you. When you get laid off, Christ is on his throne and he is for you. When the candidate you don't like gets elected, Christ is on his throne and he is for you. I heard R.C. Sproul one time say, it doesn't matter as much who's in the White House as it does who's over the White House. Christ, the King, is over the White House. When the stock market crashes, Christ, the King, is on his throne and he is for you. So the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God is that we have a king who is on his throne and he is for you. So once you enter the kingdom of God through faith, the king doesn't just kind of leave you alone. No, he goes to work. He goes to work in you and through you. And so the gospel is good news because the work of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is good news because the work of the kingdom is good news. So what's his work? What is the work of this king? You could say simply to bring about flourishing. You see in the passages right before this when Jesus is healing everybody, you know what he's doing? He's reversing the curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, disease, death, sadness entered the world. When Jesus shows up, he brings about healing, rejoicing. He's reversing the curse. And that's what he does in us and through us. As he works, I came across this in Psalm 72. Uh, it's a prayer of Solomon who's praying for the king of Israel. And basically, the, the, the prayer is kind of a picture of what it would look like if the king did his job well. And I thought this was really interesting. In verse 16, he says this May there be abundance of grain in the land. On top of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And listen to this. And may people blossom in the cities like the, like the grass of the field. The people blossom. That same word blossom in Hebrew can be translated flourish. When the king is good, his people flourish. So that's what the Lord does in us. He works in us to bring about flourishing, to make us who we were meant to be. And he does this five ways. He, he kind of undoes the curse in us in five different ways. Quickly, through the word. John 17, 17 says that Jesus will sanctify us through his word. Second Timothy says that his word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then the next verse, he says, it should be preached. We can say it should be read. It should be heard. If you're going to be like Christ, you need to be under the word. Second, he does it through his providences. There are times and seasons where the Lord will make you more like himself through difficult circumstances. I was talking to a pastor one time uh, about another pastor, and this other pastor was somebody who just loved Jesus. And they were the kind of person that just kind of, like, Jesus just kind of oozed out of them. Like, they were holy, they were loving, they were kind, they were patient. 
And I was talking to this pastor, and I was like, man, he is, he is awesome. I wish I was like him. And this pastor said, you don't want to go through the things that that guy went through to become like Christ. A lot of times the Lord uses difficult circumstances in our lives to make us like Christ. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Well, the next verse, we can't forget this next verse, verse 29. It says that that purpose is that we are made in the image of Christ. All things are working together by your king to make you who you were meant to be, to bring about flourishing in your life. And look, the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, things look upside down. Suffering is actually meant to bring about flourishing, to refine you, to make you like Christ. Third way he makes us more like himself is through fellowship. Look, being a part of God's kingdom means that we are a part of, of God's people. It's not just me and Jesus. We are a part of God's kingdom, and we sharpen each other. We spur each other on towards good deeds. Third, I mean, fourth is through prayer. I heard somebody say this one time, that prayer is not so much about us changing God's will to be ours, but when you pray, your will, your desire is changed to his. When you go before the throne of grace, you are changed, not God. And then fifth is through the sacraments. Through the sacraments. We are given grace through the sacraments. They strengthen our weak faith and they spur us on towards holiness. So look, those are just very ordinary ways that the Lord works in us. And I'll say this too, the Lord doesn't just kind of wave a magic wand and, and bam, you're all of a sudden like Jesus. Um, sanctification takes effort on your part as well, but it's impossible without him. And so use those means. We call those the means of grace. Use those means to become more like Jesus. So that's how he works in you to reverse the curse, to make you more like him. But then he works through you. When you enter the kingdom of God, you take on a whole new mission, a whole new purpose. Before you're a believer, your purpose in life can't be much more than build a kingdom for yourself. That means get as much money as you can, get as much stuff as you can, get as much comfort and pleasure as you can. So build a kingdom for yourself and make a name for yourself. Make sure that people respect you. Make sure that people think well of you. Make sure people think you're praiseworthy. That's all it can be when you are your own king. But when you enter into the kingdom of God, here's your, here's your purpose. Here's your mission. This is for everybody that's a believer. Build God's kingdom and make his name great. Build his kingdom through sharing the gospel and assisting in those efforts and make his name famous through word and deed. Bring flourishing wherever you are. So I was trying to think of an illustration of this and I have this vivid scene from a cartoon. I have no idea what it is. Ward thinks it might be Beauty and the Beast, but I'm not sure. So if you have seen this cartoon, please let me know. This is driving me crazy. But I have this vivid scene where in this cartoon, they're in this dirty room. The walls are dingy. The paint is dirty and just kind of peeling off. The wood floors are just covered with dirt. There's cobwebs in the corners. Uh, it's just a filthy room. 
and whoever it is in this cartoon, uh, they start to clean and they get this mop out and they sling water over and somehow magically, wherever this water hits, wherever these drops of water hit, the place is restored and renewed. Some water hits the wall and this dingy, gross, dirty wall becomes this bright yellow spot. It's restored. When water hits the floor, you can see these beautiful wood floors underneath all this grime and grit. Look, I think that's how the Lord works in us. Through the means of grace, he, makes, he just makes bits and pieces of us more like him. He restores us to what we were meant to be. And as he does that in us, he also sends us out into the world to do that. So that kingdom people are like those little drops that restore, that bring flourishing wherever they go. So, in a world of darkness and hopelessness, we bring the hope of the gospel. Into a world of lies and distrust, we bring honesty. Into a world of gossip and slander, we bring words of grace that build up. Into a world of sickness, we bring health. Into a world of poverty, we bring relief. Into a world of loneliness, we bring friendship. We bring about restoration and life and light as the Lord brings those things about in us. So, members of the kingdom, what are you living for? What's your mission? I'll say this, your mission in life is not to retire with a nice house and a nice car and play golf till you die. That is not your mission. Your mission is to make much of Christ wherever he has you and with whatever he gives you. So where does he have you? My grandfather was in the military. He was stationed in Hawaii, in Germany, um, all over the place. It was because the military thought it was best that he would be stationed there. Look, it's the same with our king. He stations you wherever he wants you to be at work for his kingdom. It may not be the place that you want to be, but he's called you there and you're on mission. So what kind of impact are you having on your neighborhood? Do you make your neighborhood a more enjoyable place to live? When you go to work, does your work ethic and integrity, is it a breath of fresh air for people? When your friends are enjoying gossip, do you speak words of kindness? Do the people around you have the hope of heaven? Do they know Christ? Kingdom people are to bring about flourishing in a dark world. So of course we don't do this perfectly. We will not be made perfectly like Christ. We will not fulfill our mission perfectly and thank God his love for us is not dependent on our performance here. You could say that the work of God is started in this life. It's, he's, he's hit the start button on who you will become and what the world will become. He's hit the start button. And the future is good news because it's, it's going to be finished. The work that he starts in you is guaranteed to be finished. So our, uh, I was at a friend's wedding a long time ago. Uh, this friend... It, so I'm from South Mississippi. I said this in the first service. And I think it's okay because I've, I've got a little redneck in me. I grew up 
in Brookhaven. Um, anyway, this friend was kind of a redneck. Uh, he was kind of a tough guy. He was funny. He ne- was never serious. Um, and he, like, he works on an oil rig offshore. Like, it's just a, like, man's man kind of guy. Well, I was at his wedding, and uh, he was just up on the stage. He was doing great. And then those back doors opened, and he, uh, he saw his bride all dressed up in her wedding gown, and he lost it. I mean, he was just sobbing, you know, ugly crying, just, just boo-hooing. And I was shocked. Like, I thought it was hilarious that he was doing this because just who he is. But why, why would my friend be moved so much when he sees his bride? because she is adorned in beauty and she is his. That's why he was moved when he saw her. Y'all, the future of the kingdom is that we will be reunited with Christ and we will be adorned in the righteous deeds of the saints. We will be adorned in righteousness and we will get to see the face of Jesus light up by seeing you. That's the good news of the future of the kingdom. This is what it's going to be like. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Y'all, that's the future of the kingdom of God. There's a few things in here we need to talk about. The marriage of the Lamb. So we will finally get to see Jesus face to face after 40, 50, 60 years of talking to him, of praying to him, of reading about him, one day we will finally get to see him face to face. And when we see him look at us the way a groom looks at his bride, there will be no doubt in your mind that he loves you. Look, God himself will dwell with us and faith will turn into sight. Revelation 19 says that we'll be clothed in righteousness. Y'all, There will be no more struggle with sin in the future kingdom. No more struggle. Look, this is insane to think about, but your instinct in heaven will be righteousness. If you want to do it, you can do it. You don't have to second guess your motives. You don't have to struggle with temptation. Your instinct will be righteousness. There's no more struggle with sin. There's going to be no more anxiety, no more depression, no more hiding in shame in living a secret life. There's going to be no more losing our temper at loved ones. There's going to be no more sadness. Jesus says he's going to wipe away every tear. Think about how intimate that is. When my kids cry and they come crawl up into my lap, one of the first things I do is I start wiping their tears and telling them it's going to be okay. That's intimate language. We get to be intimate with Jesus Christ, our King. There's going to be no more weariness. Our bodies will work correctly. Y'all know we're going to be in our physical bodies in the new heavens, new earth. Like you will be in your bodies and it'll work perfectly. No more pain, no more aches. Um, 
Revelation 21, 26 says that the glory of the nations will be there. The glory of the nations, saints from all over the world will be there. Think about this. You might be standing in heaven one day, shoulder to shoulder with somebody from Oaxaca, Mexico, that had a Bible translated in their language by a guy named Ricky Crager because you supported him. Think about that. Maybe one day you will be in heaven standing next to your neighbor that you shared the gospel with, but you never saw them come to Christ. Maybe in the new heavens and new earth, we'll get to see the fruit of our labor as, as the Lord works through us. One day, we'll get to heaven and we'll see Christ face to face and we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So that's the good news of King Jesus' return. But there is bad news. There is bad news when the king comes. Revelation 19, 15 says this, From the mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Everyone in this room is guilty of treason against the king. Revelation 6, when Jesus comes back, there are rulers and people from all different classes of life that see the Lamb of God coming and they flee to the mountains and they cry out for the mountains to crush them so they don't have to face the wrath of the king. There is some bad news when Jesus returns. Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not one square inch of this earth that Jesus cannot say, mine. And yet we have taken the things that he has given us, the life he's given us, the money he's given us, the people he's put around us, and we've used it for our glory, for our kingdom, to make a name for ourselves. We have committed cosmic treason against the king of kings, and there will be wrath to pay. But here's the thing. King Jesus is unlike any other king. King Jesus dies for his enemies. You commit the treason, he pays the penalty. That's how it works. So either God's wrath for your sin will be poured out on you, or he took it on the cross. Those are your only two options. So all you have to do to escape the wrath of King Jesus is confess your treason and lean on him alone for salvation. That's it. And if you do, you'll get to be in a loving relationship with this king. There'll be no more condemnation. If you confess your treason and lean on him alone for salvation, you'll be made a new person, slowly but surely, made who you were meant to be. If you do, you'll gain purpose in your life that will echo on for eternity. If you do, you will get to be with God and with his people forever. The gospel of the kingdom of God is good news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the good news of the kingdom and that you are a good king. You are trustworthy and kind and gentle. Lord, we pray that you would help us in our mission 
to make much of your name, to expand your kingdom, to bring about flourishing. Lord, help us when we grow weary. Lord, we long for the day when we see you face to face and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we pray that you would bring that day about quickly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.